Hello and welcome to this brand new podcast, Late Night Vinyl, with me, your host Dave Woodcock. Coming to you from the steel city of Sheffield, here in the People's Republic of South Yorkshire. Each episode I'll be speaking with a very special guest about their lives and career. In this debut episode is a real treat as I'm speaking with one of the most influential figures in American alternative music. And if, like me, you're a fan of the band The Replacements one of the most important people in the history of rock music as a whole. Peter Jasperson discovered the replacements, went on to manage them throughout their career before being replaced himself towards the end. He also tour managed R.E.M. and has been instrumental throughout the years in discovering and promoting new music through his label, the legendary Twin Tone Records. I initially asked Peter uh, if he'd spend 45 minutes of his time speaking with me and we ended up speaking for over four hours about his time with the replacements from their early days through the first shows the first indie releases to their signing with a major label the infamous snl performance and beyond taking in many many stories of the band's infamous recklessness and above all the incredible music they made so welcome to episode two of late night vinyl with me your host dave woodcock and the second part of my conversation with Peter Jesperson. We kick things off in this episode with the creation of the Tim album before talking about the infamous Saturday Night Live performance and the rest of the replacement's career up to and including the reunion tour, the recent Dead Man's Pop box set, Paul Westerberg's solo career and possible future replacements releases. So once again, sit back and enjoy this conversation with Peter Jesperson. And I hope you will join me on episode three, where I'll be speaking with the Hold Steady's legendary mustachioed piano player, Franz Nikolai. But for now, please enjoy this second part of my conversation with Peter Jesperson. Thanks so much. So now they're on a uh, signed to a major label, Sire Records, a subsidiary of Warner Brothers. And what does that do to the band? Um, well, you know, we got, you know, uh, we got a pretty good recording budget. We got to buy a bunch of new gear. Chris got to buy a new drum kit. Um, we got to hire uh, Tommy Erdley. You know, we tried the session with Alex Chilton in January of. Uh, of 85. And, uh, you know, it went really well. Obviously we got left to the dial out of it and uh, a couple others, but, um, uh, that didn't make the album, but, um, uh, you know, ultimately 
we didn't go with him as a producer. I think Warner Brothers just didn't think he had enough of a mar- of a marquee value to some extent or whatever. And and uh, you know, so and of course, when they suggested Tommy Erdely, we were like, oh my god, one of the Ramones, sure, let's try that. And so he came out and did some demos with the band in March, and then we liked it, and the demos turned out really good. And and so we started recording in June. And uh, put the Tim record together, and um, you know that was an odd one. Um, the night before the recording sessions, we were sitting in my apartment, the band and Tommy Erdely, and all of a sudden, Paul announced that they didn't want me in the recording studio for the sessions, wow. and I was completely taken aback. I couldn't believe it, and you know, I'd had my next you know month or whatever planned, you know, to be you know schlepping those guys back and forth to the studio and, you know, doing whatever, you know, I needed to do to, you know, keep things rolling. And, uh, Did they give a reason why? Well, they just said that, you know, they wanted to, you know, it was a little bit, um, you know, I guess like moving out of your parents' house, you know, you, you know, it, it's, you don't hate your parents, but you, you know, you want to do it on your own, uh, for a change and, and, uh, see how that works. And, <clears throat> but <clears throat> in typical replacements fashion, the timing was awful. And it hurt my feelings. And I'm sure they, you know, Paul knew full well it would hurt my feelings. And, you know, um, I wouldn't say he's a mean guy, but he sure did some mean things over the years. And uh, it also put Tommy Erdely in a very awkward position because it was like, you know, he and I had made all the arrangements and and he and I had become friends. and uh, and And so this, you know, made Tommy feel like, oh, no, we're off to a shaky start. Um, but anyway, um, that's the way it went. And I honored their wishes and, you know, I would still pop into the studio from time to time when I had to, when they needed something, you know, they were still calling me for, you know, when they needed their per diems or whatever it was. Um, and, uh, and also, uh, you know, Tommy would call me at night after the sessions and tell me how things went. And I remember actually one night, uh, he called me up and said, God, they did a song that I think is brand new that you might not know about. And I got a really good recording of it. Would you like to come over and hear it? And I said, I'd love to. So I ran over to his hotel and he played me Waitress in the Sky. And I was just knocked out. And of course, hilarious because I knew Paul's big sister was an airline stewardess and that made it even funnier. And and Tommy actually said, go ahead, take the tape home if you want to make a copy and listen to it some more. Just give it back, get it back to me in the morning, you know, uh, before the, the session. And so I did, you know, so he did, you know, he did that without the band knowing and, and I'm sure Paul would have been pissed about it. But nonetheless, it was he kept me in the loop. And then, you know, things loosened up a little bit more towards the end. Um, and, you know, Paul, you know, I think Paul missed me to some extent, uh, to be honest. We were pretty tight back in those days. And uh, and specifically, I remember being there one day when um, uh, I'd gone to a session when the band was gone and they were sort of getting to the wrap-up end of it. And Steve Felstead was there engineering with Tommy Erdely and Paul was there. And I had been talking to Michael Hill on the phone. Um, Michael Hill was their A&R guy at Sire, uh, worked for Seymour, and um, worked with Seymour. And Michael and I were just chatting. And Michael had been out to visit the sessions a time or two. But he said, uh, this, he was back in New York, and he said, um, so how's it going? And I said, it's going, re- you know, it seems to be going really good. And he knew that I had been banished from the studio for part of the time, but that I was back in a little bit or whatever. And, you know, he, he was happy about that, I guess. He liked having me around. 
and you know he and I had become very close too. Uh, anyway, he said, "Has Paul done his solo song yet?" And that was always, you know, as we were talking earlier, uh, Dave. Uh, you know, uh, those solo songs are the tender ballad songs of Paul's, like "Go" or "Within Your Reach" or um, you know, "16 Blue" or whatever. They were really important songs, and uh, and so I said, "I don't think Paul has a solo one." And Michael said, oh, I don't know. I think he does. He told me about it. And I said, hmm, interesting. And I thought, oh, Paul's keeping things from me now. Okay, I see how this is working. Anyway, so I go into the studio and, you know, they'd finished a mix or whatever. And I said, so, Paul, I hear you got a solo song that you're holding out on me about. And he looked really nervous. I mean, really, like, seriously uncomfortable. And he kind of, you know, looked at me and then he looked at Tommy and Steve and he was like, yeah, I do. I got one. Come here. And he, and he, he says, uh, uh, I, I want to do an acoustic one or whatever to uh, Tommy and Steve. So they get to setting up the, the board for that. And Paul grabs me by the arm, pulls me in the, in the, the studio room. And it, he had me help him take these huge, they were, you know, it was a full on recording studio we were using Nicolet studios and it had these big things. They call them choir baffles. Do you know what those are? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're Separation. they're big, you know, baffles that have curved tops to t- try to capture the you know, the the voices or whatever to anyway, we moved these big choir baffles up against he had me help him move the choir baffles up against the window that went into the control room so he could not be seen while he was doing the song. And then he pulled a, a chair out and Steve and Tommy set up a microphone for the guitar and a microphone for Paul's voice. And then they had left the studio and I'm just in there with Paul and making sure everything's ready to go. And then he had me turn the lights down almost to pitch dark. I mean, it was, you know, you would have tripped over something if you tried walking around in there uh, very much. And then I left the room, went into the control room with Steve and Tommy and they said, uh, you know, hit record and did the tapes rolling. And Paul did, uh, uh, here comes a regular. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, that the reaction was, in the studio was <laughs> one of those moments where, you know, Tommy and Steve and I are just going, Oh my fucking God. You know, I mean, it was yeah. unbelievable. And I think he did two takes of it. And, um, and, uh, and that was it. It was done. And so that was a, another one of those. I don't know what would have happened if Paul would have really held out that song had Michael not, casually mentioned that to me on the phone i mean it was it was really uh you know quite a lucky happening so it would have been detrimental to the uh the history of recorded music <laughs> in my yeah. humble opinion it is one of the finest recordings that there is I think. yeah so. and that really felt like you know it was about all of us really you know i mean it was about the you know we the bar we hung out at the cc club you know that was really to me i when I hear that song, I just picture Paul sitting at the bar at the CC Club.
once they got onto Warner Brothers, I mean, I, uh, to be honest, you know, I never, I didn't sell myself to them as a manager. I was just trying to do the things that they needed done that they couldn't do. And um, as I like to say, I ran interference for them. I think what I did for them was more telling them what they shouldn't do or didn't have to do than telling them what to do. Um, and, uh, but I didn't feel like I was a full on manager and I was very honest about that from the beginning. And, um, uh, so, uh, by the time they got on Sire, I, I, I said, you know, I really think we need to look at, you know, real management, business management. And, um, so that's when we started interviewing people and we'd hired, uh, the new managers, I believe in December. Um, and that was a couple of guys, Russ Rieger and Gary Habib, who had a little company called High Noon Management. And, and so they were now managing the band. And, and, uh, and I remember them being present for the Saturday Night Live thing in uh, January. That was their first kind of official, uh, you know, experience with the replacements. And, and uh, so that album, that album comes out, that album is Tim. Yes. Um, they've already released one masterpiece in Let It Be. And personally feel that they followed it up with with another on any given day i couldn't put a cigarette paper between them i think um famously though um bob wasn't too involved on tim is that right he wasn't playing guitar in the studio with them he came in did did some overdubs is that yeah, right? well they did some tracking with the four of them but i mean it was it was it had become increasingly clear that you know uh partly Paul's songwriting was really developing and there was a lot less manic, loud, fast rock and roll stuff for Bob to strut his stuff on. And, you know, Bob actually liked a variety of music. Um, he liked slow songs. He liked pretty songs. You know, he loved, like he used to come to my house and listen to bad finger all the time, for instance. Um, but you know, he just felt that the replacements should be doing full tilt rock and roll all the time, I guess. And so he was, um, he was a little bit, uh, sabotaging, uh, Paul's, uh, you know, more tender tracks, the ballads, uh, he tended to sabotage them a little bit more. And also, frankly, he was, um, you know, uh, drinking and drugging, uh, more than he should have. And, you know, that's a little bit like the pot calling the kettle black because the entire band was, as was their manager, me. And, um, mm. but, um. Uh, yeah, so Bob, uh, you know, Bob was a really strange guy. He was not a dumb guy by any stretch, but he was not an educated guy. He was not, a, um, uh, you know, just, he was not your average Joe. And so in his mind, it was still his band to some extent. I mean, you know, he, it had been his band before Paul came along. So he was really reluctant to sort of let Paul, you know, become, you know, the de facto leader. And, um, so, you know, that created friction as well. And he was yeah. not, you know, when he didn't call him, um, either the smartest dumb guy or the dumbest smart guy that he'd ever yeah, met. Exactly. Something those lines, that's yeah. a good, that's a good description. And, um, so, you know, yeah, it just became more and more problematic and, and Paul uh, or, or Bob just couldn't deliver what needed to be done. So, you know, they, you know, and I, I wasn't privy to the conversations, but clearly they started recording without Bob. So I don't know if he was told to not come in or if he said, fuck you, I'm not coming in or, you know, it was a mutual decision. And, you know, um, so, yeah, he just uh, became less and less involved. Um, 
And uh, of course, you know, the beginning of the sessions that became Tim, uh, you know, with Alex Chilton in January, I mean, he did to me one of his all time best guitar solos on uh, that song, Nowhere Is My Home. Um, yes. You know, so clearly he still could deliver uh, when he wanted to or when he wasn't, hadn't had too many cocktails. But, uh, yeah. you know. I didn't, I didn't want to circle back t- too much, but those Chilton sessions did produce that song, which came out here in the UK on the Boink album, which I think was um, a, a compilation of Hootenanny and um, If Only You Were Lonely, Nowhere Is My Home. Um, things like yep, that, exactly. Um, which and which is actually a great holds together. I think as a as a as a really nice album, um, but also the version of "Can't Hardly Wait," the uh, the original version. Well, there's two versions. There was the solo, or the you know the acoustic one, yeah. and then there was the full band one. And I think both of those are tremendous versions of that song. Uh, incredible. It's it's really hard to fuck that song up. I think it's just. Yeah. <laughs> inherently inherently great song but what that was that was on the back burner for a while wasn't it big they were playing that were they playing that back in 84 even yeah i mean i'm trying to think of when it it came around it might have been yeah i do think it was 84 um because what for in my mind you know there's a parallel universe where the replacements you know uh, had a big hit with uh i will dare and let it be was a huge record and then they followed that up with the next record and single, which was Can't Hardly Wait. To me, that was really, I thought Can't Hardly Wait was the logical uh, follow-up to, you know, the great single, I Will Dare. Um, and and by the way, you know, one of the things I love about the Tim album is long, you know, Tim, it was a very, la- very last-minute decision to call it Tim. Throughout the entire sessions, Paul wanted to call it Let It Bleed. And yeah. I just thought that would have been so great for them to put out Let It Be and to follow it with Let It Bleed. To me, that would have just been an excellent, you know, part of their, uh, you know, story. But anyway. Um, Do we have a definitive answer as to why it's called no. Tim? No. Okay. I mean, we had some Tims around. Uh, you know, Tim Carr was uh, another A&R guy at, at Warner Brothers at the time. He didn't work for Sire, but he worked for Warners. And, um, you know, it could have had something to do with Tim. He also introduced us to Robert Mongo, who, you know, did the painting for the cover, which, you know, we ended up not liking. But, you know, it was just seemed like we were suddenly had gone up a couple rungs in the ladder. And Tim Carr was a great old friend of mine uh, from Minneapolis as well. And and so it could have been that. But, I, I you know, it's, I remember Paul saying it. He said, I think we should call the album Tim. And I said, why? And he said, it's such a nice name. decided that we wanted to do a local release party. Uh, Paul said, I don't want to just do the normal play, the main room at First Avenue kind of thing. Why don't we do five nights in the 7th Street entry in the little room that they were way too big to play in anymore? And so we arranged these five nights in the 7th Street entry. You know, Seymour flew in. You know, we had a great kickoff for that record in, I believe it was October of 85. Um, And then, you know, the full-on touring commenced. We went you know, all over the country. And we went out East. Uh, um, we had been on a road trip in early January, uh, and just gotten back when I got a call from our attorney, George Regis, who said, um, um, uh, what are you doing Wednesday? And I said, I'm sleeping. I hope because we had been on the road for a couple of weeks. And he said, no, you're getting on a plane and coming to New York. You're doing Saturday night live. And I was like, holy shit. You know, so we flew out to do Saturday night live, uh, around the 20th or so of January and, and, um, a pretty big get for the replacements. It was a big get. Um, 
And uh, I think that uh, the replacements were quite literally replacements for somebody who canceled and they needed somebody. Uh, it was a last minute decision. And the way I heard the story, actually not at the time, but later, was that um, possibly even Mo Austin, <clears throat> who hadn't had much involvement at all with the replacements um, up to that point, uh, put some pressure on his uh friends at uh, NBC where Saturday Night Live was done and um, and uh, asked a favor. I don't know if he put pressure on them, but he asked a favor. And um, so it was, it was quite a surprise. And, um, you know, uh, with all due respect, I think the show was a little bit at low ebb at the time in terms of the quality of the writing and, and uh, of the shows itself themselves. Uh, and, uh we weren't exactly warly welcomed um let's put it that way <clears throat> it was more I like I, I got the sense that the, everybody there knew we were replacements for somebody who'd canceled and that you know they just had to get this show done and out of the way um do you know who who the replacements replaced i don't um i think though I believe that that has been written about, I think even maybe even Bob's book, if maybe you'd remember, or if you want to look back. Um, but I, I, I think that maybe somebody said the pointer sisters or something crazy like that. That rings a bell. Yeah. That rings a bell. Yeah. yeah. It um, reminds me of the, um, Bill Grundy show, uh, where queen pulled out and they put the um, pistols on. And the pistols went on as a replacement. <laughs> <laughs> and similar hijinks ensued. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah. Were you there that night? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, talk us through exactly what happened then. Harry well, Dean Stanton was the guest. God he, bless him. R.I.P. Yeah, he was. Um, you know, it was, we, we were, you know, just so excited. The idea of being on, you know, national TV for the first time, of course, is very exciting. And, um, you know, but it happened so quickly. We flew out, I believe we flew out on a Wednesday and then we had dress rehearsals or rehearsals of some kind on Thursday, maybe had all of Friday off and then came back in Saturday. Um, and so when, you know, I mean, it was, it's such a crazy experience and you think back on it because like we didn't even have a credit card. So somebody from Warner brothers had to guarantee our hotel room when we checked in. And of course they put us in some nice hotel way uptown there by Rockefeller center where NBC, where Saturday night live was done. And, um, um, you know, there, the, the, uh, NBC was walking distance from the hotel, but they sent a limo to pick us up. You know, I mean, it was really, it was kind of crazy. Um, and, you know, so I believe the first time we walked in was about 10 a.m. on that Thursday morning. And uh, as soon as we got there and, you know, the uh, they were starting to set up the stage and everything. And we were, you know, Bill Sullivan and I hauled gear in. And, um, and then Bob says, you know, I, I want some beer you know, it's 10 in the morning. And I, so I said to one of the NBC people, you know, they put some, you know, uh, 
you know, uh, juices and, you know, uh, pastries in our dressing room. And I said to one of the NBC people, could we get some beer, please? And they were like, oh, no, we can't provide beer for the performers. And somebody actually made a statement to me, uh, something like, you know, oh, the, uh, you know, and this could be my memory being a little foggy, but to some, maybe I'm paraphrasing, but they said something like, oh, the groups we have on now don't drink or do drugs anymore. And I was thinking, wow, I just... <laughs> I just saw the Dream Academy on here a couple of weeks ago. I think they were, they're pretty, you know, I think they were well-known druggies. I mean, but anyway, um, so they would not get beer. So I had to go down, you know, and I didn't want to be gone for too long because I was trying to help take care of everything, make everything was going, you know, make sure everything was going as smoothly as possible. So I remember running down to a deli there on Rockefeller Plaza and buying like a, I think I bought, I guess I must've bought two six packs of Heineken and it was like, you know, $30 or something crazy. I mean, it was just, <clears throat> uh, and so, you know, brought it back up and I remember Sullivan looking at me and going, you bought a 12 pack, like how long is that going to last kind of thing? And really it was just gone immediately. And so then, you know, it was just that all day long had to, you know, try to find another place where you could buy a larger quantity cheaper, you know, than the deli right there at Rockefeller Plaza. But anyway, um, so it was, it was not a heck of a lot of fun. Um, and again, we just didn't feel very well treated and, and, um, felt like interlopers or whatever. And, um, but you know, they, uh, also, I remember Paul was not sure what songs he wanted to do yet. And, um, so well, they hadn't rehearsed them at the, at the rehearsal, uh, the, which songs they were going to play that well, night. This is at the rehearsal. He hadn't decided oh, what sorry. songs they were going to do for sure yet. They hadn't nailed it down. And so um, I remember him saying he might want to do Answering Machine. And I actually ran out to SIR and rented a 12-string for him and brought it back. Um, and... You know, uh, I don't remember specifically, but Warners couldn't have been happy about that because, you know, they're um, footing the bill for, you know, the plane tickets and the hotels and everything. And here they want to do a song that's not on Warner Brothers. But um, uh, so uh, then they ended, ended up settling on Kiss Me on the Bus and Bastards of Young. Uh, Bastards of Young had been talked about in advance, and I remember we had to get them the lyrics to the song ahead of time because they were worried it was going to be full of profanity. And I tried to tell them, look, it's really just this, the, the word bastards is in the title. That's the only bad word in the whole song. Um, so anyway, that one was was probably for sure, but maybe Kiss Me on the Bus was the variable. Um, I also remember Russ Rieger and Gary Habib, the two new managers from High Noon Management, coming in. And, um, you know, both good guys. Um, but Russ was, um, a little bit more of a music business kind of guy than maybe was, uh, you know, welcome to the replacements. And he, I remember he came in with like a fringe jacket and these snakeskin boots and, and, um, it, it was, it was, you know, and again, really nice guy. And I like him a lot, but it really seemed a little cliche to us. And I also remember him walking on to the stage uh, sort of like I'm the new manager kind of thing and going, okay, guys, you know what camera blocking means? That means they tell you where to stand and that's where you stand. And I was a few feet away looking at him going, wait a second, you're the new replacements manager and you think this is the way to talk to the replacements? I was like, this is not going to fly. And of course it didn't. I mean, they didn't, you know, they didn't stand where they were supposed to stand at all. I don't think, uh, moved around just to, you know, to, to, spite 
people or whatever. Um, and, you know, I'm sure there were problems with volume and all that stuff. Uh, we did have our uh, wonderful sound man, also RIP, uh, Monty Lee Wilkes was with us. And um, he was a really cool guy, very diplomatic. And they actually let him into the control room. And I think from what I understood, they didn't often let the band's own personal sound man have anything to do with it. But he helped them, uh, I think, get, you know, the best sound they could. Um, under the circumstances. So that was a, another fond memory. I got to bring Monty. Uh, he was a small town boy that we'd hired not too long before. And, you know, I remember calling him up and saying, we're going to New York to do Saturday Night Live. And he was like, oh my God, I'm going to New York. He couldn't believe it. he was, you know, he was actually from Duluth now that I think about it. But um, so it was, uh, it was a little bit of a crazy time. And, um, and then, you know, we got out of there and came back for the actual, you know, uh, day of, um, uh, of, of the show, the Saturday. And, uh, I think they do the show twice. They do it once in front of a studio audience and then they do it again in front of a new studio audience, uh, live on air. And, um, so, uh, by that time, you know, having, and really, I don't think they let the band leave the building at all. So the band is being very, very feeling very cooped up and, you know, so that caused some shenanigans. They did some uh, sort of sculptures of the deli tray on the walls inside the dressing room and, um, you know, some stuff like that. Um, we had snuck some liquor in again. Um, and then Harry Dean Stanton came to say hello. And I believe, again, this could be the foggy memory, but I believe that he was um, trying not to drink uh, maybe just for that uh, event, or maybe he was trying to stop drinking altogether, but he came in and started nipping on our bottle. And I remember people getting really pissed off about that. Um, and, uh, Sam Kinnison was also on the show and, you know, he was a pretty outrageous guy. Um, also passed away now, hasn't he? Um, but, um, so, you know, so they, they played the first song. Um, and, uh, I think, it was Bastards of Young first, and and right before the solo, Paul famously turns to Bob and says, "Come on, motherfucker!" Right before the guitar solo, and although he didn't say it on mic, you could sure see what he said. Just uh, you know, and I think that it was audible in the control room um, because they have you know everything pumped up so much in there. But uh, I don't think it was really audible on TV. But anyway, of course, they were just furious about that. I know the stories that Lorne Michael certainly heard it. Yeah, right. Did he come backstage and tear them a new one? Well, I remember him screaming, and I think it was sort of directed at me because I'd been the one that had gotten him the lyrics and whatnot in the beginning and saying this song isn't going to be a problem. Um, and I think he said, you promised me they wouldn't do something like that. But again, I, that's something I'm a little hazy on, whether or not that really happened or it's a, a an altered memory. I don't know, but um, but yeah, it was it was a very uptight scene. And then, of course, they all changed clothes, uh, wore each other's clothes for the second song, and and um, so it might have. I, do you remember? You may remember this better than I. If it was "Kiss Me on the Bus" first, and then "Bastards of Young" or the other way. I don't. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I never. I didn't see it in real time. Obviously, being here in the UK, and I've right. only ever seen you know the the the, the footage just uh, clips or whatever. Yeah. But um, 
I mean, certainly I think Kiss Me on the Bus is seems a little more pissed off and inebriated than uh, than uh, Bastards does. Yeah. Uh, think that's when bob throws his guitar behind him and then throws his hands up and goes like almost what did you expect kind of right yep exactly so that was that um you know we had some issues too with bob uh, back at the hotel having a fight with his girlfriend on the phone and you know he like smashed the telephone and and uh, so that caused you know further unpleasantness and of course you know Warner's has put their credit card on the hotel room and it was, uh, you know, something else that they got stuck paying for. But, um, the only other thing that I guess I remember very specifically apart, you know, it was like, Oh, they, they also said you can fly the wives and girlfriends out. So, um, Bob's girlfriend didn't come with him, but he was talking to her on the phone, but the, everybody else's and even my girlfriend flew out at the time. Um, so, um, we had all of those people to, to, you know, wrangle back out to the airport and stuff. And of course, leaving on that Sunday, you know, we'd all gone out afterwards, uh, and, you know, probably had quite a lot to drink. And, you know, I remember really hurting and trying to, you know, uh, get everybody, you know, to the airport on time and to the gate on time and all that stuff. It was like kind of nightmarish for me, to be honest. Um, but, uh, the, the other thing that's sort of odd about it was, uh, in Minneapolis, they had on the channel that carried uh, Saturday Night Live, they had a long time booked uh, telethon uh, for some kind of, uh, you know, uh, to raise money for some, you know, like Jerry Lewis, you know, fund or something mm-hmm. like that. So the uh, Saturday Night Live was pre, it was preempted in Minneapolis, in our hometown. So, you know, it was one of the things that we were most excited about that all our friends and parents and relatives and everything would see him on TV. But what one guy did, uh, somebody talked to the NBC affiliate in Minneapolis and they were able to go to the station and get a videotape of the show. And then they ran it down to First Avenue where they showed it in the main room. And a bunch of people came down just to watch it in the main room. And uh, I know that uh, a writer... um, a uh, local writer who was a big champion of the band, a guy named Jim Walsh. I believe he had written something like, you know, that it's really so sad that the replacements didn't get to hear the biggest cheer, hometown cheer they ever had, um, you know, when they came on, uh, you know, the big screen at First Avenue and people knew they'd been on live TV. Ladies and gentlemen, the replacements. And and Jim Walsh wrote the um the um oral history of the replacements. Exactly. That Jim Walsh, yeah. Yep. Um, all over but all the shouting. Over the shouting. Yeah. yeah. And then he did another uh, uh painted shoes, I think, uh waxed up hair and painted shoes, a oh, mainly the, photo the, book that had some text in it too. And he was a, he was around. He had a band, by the way, uh, called Laughing Stock, just for your information, and, and um or actually REMS. They were called REMS at first, and then of course REM came along and they changed their name to Laughing Stock, but uh, Jim came in and sang. Uh, he was a good friend of ours and uh, the bands, and and uh, he came into the studio and sang on uh, "Love You Till Friday." And his track didn't end up getting used, but um, oh. yeah, he was a, a good mate of ours. Is is Jim still around? Yeah, he is. I'll see him this weekend at the memorial for Terry Katzman. 
We spoke about Terry earlier. Um, he was the guy that recorded the police raid at the beginning of Stink. Correct. And um, he did um, pass pass away recently. I I, I didn't know Terry. Um, we had some mutual friends, um, and I found out through the usual social media. So, for those that don't know, who who was Terry, and and why is he part of the story? Well, Terry is, I got to say, first and foremost, one of my dearest friends in life. I guess we knew each other for going on 45 years. Um, And uh, he had been a customer at Orfolk, and I had gotten to know him. He was really a smart guy and a really good uh, music journalist. He wrote record reviews for various publications um, and stories. he was one of the hugest uh, supporters of the Suicide Commandos from the very beginning. Um, and uh, he worked for a competing, competing record store called Third Stone in Minneapolis. And uh, I, uh, I don't remember this specifically, but Terry has told the story many times that apparently I marched into Third Stone one day and in front of the manager and Terry said, Terry doesn't belong at your store. He belongs at our store and I'm going to hire him away. <laughs> and, um, which doesn't sound like me cause I'm not usually that kind of a brash person, but anyway, uh, I may have been a little brash because I knew Terry really did belong at our store. His enthusiasm and knowledge was much more appropriate for Orfolk than it was for this other kind of, you know, good, but just normal record store. Um, and so Terry came to work at Orfolk and he was just a joy to work with all the time. When the replacements came along, he was one of the first guys to hear that tape that Paul gave me. So he was on board from the very beginning. And, uh, when they started playing dates, Terry fell in, uh, to the difficult position of being their live sound man. And, um, and they loved him. And, uh, so he was just part of the team for a long time, uh, 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 he also got involved with, uh, Husker Du and helped them set up the label reflex and, um, you know, recorded all kinds of shows. In fact, there was a big Husker Du box set that just came out last year through the numero group. And, yeah, I'm uh, just th- I'm looking at it now. Yeah. And they, uh, used primarily, uh, Terry's tapes for that. Um, he has an incredible archive of things. And, and in fact, um, we have been talking about, um, you know, what other replacements projects might be coming up now after this last box set, the uh, Dead Man's Pop set that came out mm-hmm. uh, in September. And um, so we've been just listening to different things from different periods. And um, Terry uh, made me some copies of some of the shows that he recorded, uh, put them on CD for me. And um, he was coming out to visit. Um, uh, he would just come out to LA to visit every couple of years. And, you know, we'd just hang out and do our thing, listen to music you know, go to record stores, whatever, which is what we did on this trip uh, a couple weeks ago. And um, uh, we had been record shopping one afternoon and uh, came back to the house here. Uh, and he decided to lay down for a little bit of a nap. And um, he laid down and, and sadly never woke up and uh, had uh, a, a heart attack of some kind. And um, so... Uh, um, you know, it's uh, it was a very, of course, a very tough thing to handle, um, and uh, I felt so terrible for his wife and his two sons and the rest of his family. Um, uh, but um, it, uh, I do have to say, if we can take some solace in such a terrible experience, um, he had a great 
last couple of days, and it appeared to me that he passed peacefully in his sleep. So I guess if you got to go, it wasn't a bad way to go. But um, it, uh, of course, um, incredibly uh, devastating for many of us. And, um, you know, we will have a gathering of lots of his friends and family this Sunday at a place called the Hook and Ladder in Minneapolis. But, uh, uh, you know, he is uh, one of those guys, he, he loomed so large in my life, he will never be absent. He will always be in, he will always be present somehow for me. Lovely. Godspeed, Terry Katzman. And thank you for sharing that with us, Peter, as well. Saturday Night Live happened. We went home and then uh, came uh, the, the tour. The next tour actually started not too long after that, probably towards the beginning of February. And we went out east. Um, I do remember flying. We flew into Providence, Rhode Island, for some reason, to start the tour. Uh, and um, uh, the crew drove uh, the gear out, and I flew out with the band and the guitars. And uh, we had rented uh, a van. Um, and when I got to the airport, they said they were out of vans and they gave us a station wagon, which was really a drag, but we had no choice. So we ended up cramming all four of the guys in the band, me and the guitars <clears throat> and Chris's snare drum, I believe, into uh, a station wagon. It was, of course, not a great way to start the tour. And those guys, you know, it, it was a bad way to start. It gave them a reason to fuck you. I'm going to have a 12 drinks now or whatever. But, um, but anyway, we got the, uh, we got the tour underway. Uh, that was, uh, the trip that, uh, we recorded, uh, with a, the big full on 24 track mobile recording unit recorded a gig at Maxwell's in Hoboken that came out yes. as a live record a couple of years ago, um, which was an exciting, uh, experience, you know, to again, you know, be doing something that we had never done before, like a real high quality live recording. And the band put on a really good show. And I was worried about that because again, when you, you know, let them know they were about to do something that had importance attached, you know, they could often, you know, throw a wrench into the works. But anyway, in this case they delivered the goods. And um and why why was that recording um held back for so long? Well, it was just um you know, uh, it's an amazing performance. Yeah. Well, Michael Hill, their A&R guy at Warner's had, um, kind of, uh, spearheaded that, uh, the whole idea of recording a live record. And then, um, you know, it's really, uh, that's a little bit lost to the, in the mists of time. I don't remember why nothing was done. Uh, but you know, they were at that time, they were still touring the Tim album. Um, although it's funny when you listen to the Maxwell's thing, there's more you know, stink. You know, I think the best performances actually are Stink and Sorry Ma songs, which is a little ironic. But, um, but they, um, so for whatever reason, I think that, you know, Warner's maybe just felt like, you know, maybe we'll do, you know, a live record down the road a piece. And, you know, after doing the Tim album, you know, of course, Bob was kicked out of the band. And then, um, you know, they went to Memphis to record what became Pleased to Meet Me as a trio. Um, so maybe Warner's just felt this isn't the band that we have anymore because the lead guitar player has changed. Um, sure. and, uh, um, so anyway, we did the Maxwell's thing and did some other dates up and down the East coast. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, uh, the part where my time with the band came to an end, uh, in, I believe it was April. Uh, we were back in Minneapolis and, uh, 
sort of, again, uh, ironic. I was on my way out the door uh, to buy Tommy and Bob's mom a wedding present. She was getting remarried. And um, I was just on my way out the door when my phone rang, and it was Paul. And he said, we got to have a band meeting today. Um, and I said, oh, I'm just going out to buy Anita a present. Um, you know, why don't you guys have the meeting, and I'll catch up. You can catch me up on what you talked about afterwards. And he said, no. He said, you really got to be there for this one. I said, well, okay. And so we met at the Uptown Bar, um, which was another music room in town, um, where the replacements were much too big to play the little room, but they would do some cameos there from time to time. And and uh, and that and also that's the place where Tommy and Bob's mom uh, was a day manager bartender. Um, and uh, so we met at the Uptown and started talking. And uh, I was like, well it was only Tommy and Paul. I said, I thought this was a band meeting and I don't remember what they said there, but I found out later that Bob and Chris didn't want to attend the the meeting because they didn't agree with what Paul and Tommy had decided to do. And that was to let me go. And, um, so, uh, Paul, all of a sudden, you know, just said, look, I'm not happy with the way things are going. And when I get mad, I want to start swinging. And I don't want you to be in the way catching any punches. Was that a cop out? Well, uh, on his um, or? Uh, well I, you know, I, I thought, you know, when I, when I think about it, and of course it was a very tough, you know, it was a very strange situation, you know, uh, and at that time I was, uh, you know, probably as much of a raging alcoholic as the band was. So, you know, my memory is a little hazy and I'm sure we were sitting at the Uptown having a couple of drinks. Um, but I remember it being, uh, a fairly benevolent, uh, way of being told and in a way sort of, uh, uncharacteristic of them really. Uh, but, mm. you know, clearly we had a long history together and, and, uh, you know, I guess um, for all the ups and downs I had with the band, uh, you know, and as sad and as hard as it was for me to take, there was something very touching about the way Paul delivered the news to me. Um, and uh, but also, uh, I think, to uh, you know, first off, when we hired the, the formal ma- business management, Russ and Gary, um, I just, I I thought this is so great. We need somebody to handle, you know, the meetings with the marketing team at Warner Brothers and somebody to handle the business end of it and the finance and the merchandise and all of that stuff. That's just not in my wheelhouse. I'm not that kind of guy. And and, and frankly, I'm not, you know, I I, I did kind of manage one band later, uh, but I've never considered myself a real band manager. I never went to pursue it with other groups. I'm just not that kind of personality. But, um, um, I, uh, so I, I thought having Russ and Gary in was a great thing. And I just assumed that I would always be the band's personal manager. And I would be, you know, because it had been the five of us for so many years, we were, you know, we were a team and, uh, and I loved them dearly as people and as, as, as artists. And, um, so it, it was absolutely the furthest thing in my mind that, you know, uh, they would not want me around. I should have probably, I look back on it now and I think, you know, they were really, uh, tough to deal with in so many ways that I, I I think that they were actually trying to get me to quit. So they didn't have to ask me to leave. 
And certainly yeah. looking back at, you know, the Tim recording sessions when the night before the sessions were to start, they said, we don't want you in the studio with us. That was, should have, I should have probably paid a little more attention to that. But anyway, um, so I thought it was a fairly benevolent thing to do or a benevolent way to uh, be told. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, in a lot of respects, I deserved it. I mean, I was drinking too much and drugging too much and, um, you know, there were a couple of times, I know one place uh, that we used to play called the Bowery in Oklahoma city. Um, we had lots of, uh, we had developed a, a pretty good audience in that part of the world and, um, had played there a number of times. And so people would always show up and, and, you know, they had, uh, you know, some, you know, some extra party favors, shall we say. And, uh, and I got carried away one night and I think when I was supposed to be collecting the money, um, uh, you know, at the end of the night, uh, I was too out of it to do it. And Paul had to go get paid for me and, and, uh, for the band. And, uh, and I was of course very embarrassed by that, but, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, what can I say? I, I should have known better, but, uh, you know, and, 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 and like, as you, you know, uh, you know, as people, you know, rock and roll is, a um, a uh, job where there's an awful lot of uh, alcohol and drugs around a lot of waiting well and a lot of waiting well. around too and and it's one thing for the band to be you know in their cups shall we say but it's 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 certainly not um very appropriate for the manager to be in his cups and so you know um <clears throat> it was uh it was probably uh time for me to go um in a way and uh also i suppose a little bit like again the uh you know, Tim recording sessions thing, a little bit like, you know, wanting to move out of your parents' house, you know, you gotta, you know, you gotta try to, you know, find your own sea legs in this world. And, um, and, um, so anyway, I, uh, I was, uh, asked to step down and, uh, then in typical replacements fashion, uh, when I started hearing from other people, oh yeah, we heard the replacements fired you, you know, and it's like, well, that wasn't exactly the way it went down, but then, you know, that's the way Paul would talk to people. Yeah, we fired his ass or whatever. And it's like, well, that makes me feel real good too. But, um, but anyway, um, you know, it was a lesson learned and, uh, I spent a couple of years, um, uh, you know, frankly, uh, you know, drinking too much. And as I've said more than once, uh, maybe it was my slow chicken shit at attempt at committing suicide or something. I was really, uh, I didn't, um, you know, it was a, it was a tough pill to swallow, you know, a little bit like, uh, you know, um, you know, being kicked out of a club, you helped start. Um, and so, uh, I wasn't sure how to handle it or what I wanted to do. I did some temp work here and there. And finally the liquor made me good and sick. I came very close to actually passing away in, uh, 1991. And, uh, and then I stopped drinking and, uh, and I haven't had a drink since it'll be 30 years next year, I think, wow. or no, 29 years in March. Yeah. So anyway, um, um, and with, um, with, um, kind of 30 years of sobriety behind you, um, has, has that situation become any clearer to you as to what actually happened? I, I mean, have Tommy and Paul spoken to you since about, exactly why they they didn't want you 
know, you know, we didn't really, more. you know, it's something that hasn't exactly been addressed. Um, you know, for one thing, when I have talked to Tom, Tommy's, you know, the one that I'm the closest to. Um, and yes. we talk constantly. I mean, we're in touch every week. Um, and, you know, he lives out in New York State now. He lives in Hudson, New York, but uh, um, he's in Spain at the moment touring. But um, uh, Tommy, when I talk to Tommy about it, he really doesn't remember much of it. So, and I don't think that that's just a product of, you know, his drinking, um, although that certainly had something to do with it. Um, so there have been a couple of times where I've asked him sort of specific questions about things and he just, you know, doesn't remember at all. Um, and you know, there's certainly no, you know, animosity or, you know, you deserved it, Peter, or any of that. Uh, Paul and I have probably never, uh, talked about it at all. Um, and we're really not much in touch now the last couple of years. Um, so, you know, hard for me to say, but I mean, I do think, um, you know, again, I should have known better. I should have uh, drank less um, and been more responsible. But at the same time, you know, they were. Yeah, look who you were managing. Well, right. I mean, I, to some degree, I mean, I think it's been proven that they're sort of un, they were sort of unmanageable. Um, mm. But uh, you know, I guess you know when it came down to you know what were they going to do? Hire new management who come in at fifteen or twenty percent and continue to pay another manager, you know, uh, a chunk of money. And you know, we had a very loose deal; never had anything on paper. Um, you know, so, uh, when Russ and Gary came in, it was initially negotiated that I would just take a, lar- a lower percentage. Um, but it was still, you know, I was still paid fairly well, relatively speaking for a band that didn't make a lot of money. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it's just one of those things that, you know, I guess I, like I can, all I can say is, uh, you know, I should have known better and, and, um, lesson learned and they needed to move on and they needed to move on without me. And that's just the way it went down. So, um, and they, and they did, they did move on. Um, but, um, I guess that's where your story, uh, with the replacements ends for the moment, but they went on, they did please to meet me in Memphis yep. with Jim Dickinson. Yep. And then, um, don't tell us all. Yep. Which was done in New York uh, and L.A. and a bit in Minneapolis, with uh, starting with Tony Berg and then Matt Wallace. Two great podcasts, uh, by the way, about the uh, you know those sessions and the Dead Man's yes. Pop box set. If you haven't listened to them on the Rhino website, and a wonderful uh, description of those sessions in Bob Mayer's book, yes, uh, as well. And that that box set is something of a revelation really i think in terms of i've always wondered one of my favorite things was um when don't tell us all was re-released in uh, 2008 yeah. on cd yep. um those outtakes of portland uh, a song i've covered a number of times i think it's a beautiful song yeah. and uh, wake up and we know the night um gave a bit of an insight into what that album could have been. Uh, and I think the box set redresses that yep. um, very well with the, with the new mix as well. Yeah. Um, well, I produced uh, that well, 2008 well, series of all eight records. And, um, yeah. you know, so we used 
um, a number of tracks that were uh, reused in this new reissue, but they also found some tapes uh, in Slim Dunlap's basement. <clears throat> and uh, that was sort of where this concept for this whole box set began because they found the rough mixes that Matt Wallace had done that sounded so much different and so much more like the replacements in the Chris Lord Algae mixes on the official album that was released yeah, back so in 89. Yeah. yeah. So uh, uh, were you involved at all in that release? I was. Or? I was. Yeah. I did a number of uh, things just sort of in the, uh, uh, in the back background. Um, uh, you know, I, I always help, you know, Bob writes the liner notes and, you know, we always talk about what he's written and he wants to make sure that it's accurate to somebody like me who is, you know, there in the thick of it, even when I wasn't working with the band at that point. And, um, you know, um, you know, just suggesting certain production people that I thought could help make it sound good. And, uh, again, I'm a real good vinyl proofer. So I proofed the, the vinyl portion of the project, um, with Matt Wallace and, and, um, you know, we conferred on our notes and things. So yeah, I was involved in that. Um, I, you know, uh, I think we'll continue to be involved in certain replacements projects over the years when appropriate. Fantastic. Yeah. Any, um, uh, on a personal note, any plans for a vinyl release of the, uh, of the outtakes and the, uh, the, the live show? Um, not so far. I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, I don't know that they would have a big enough market for that to, to do that. Um, um, but you know, maybe, you know, it's, it's interesting how, um, you know, the replacements are sort of in a way more popular now than they were when they were together. Um, and so, you know, initially I think when we were talking, like even as recently as, uh, the 2008 reissues, um, it didn't seem like it was a huge deal to Rhino and no criticism mm-hmm. intended. They were just, um, you know, in the, in the, um, hierarchy of the, you know, artists that they have to deal with and things that can sell, certain numbers in terms of reissues, the replacements are probably not at the top of the list, but you know, now that they've did um, this Maxwell's thing, which sold really well. And then the, this um, dead man's pop project, it really outsold uh, their expectations. So now Rhino is actually calling us and saying, what's next, what's the next replacements thing. (laughs) So, you know, that's kind of an interesting twist. So if this keeps going this way, it could be that down the road, they'll say, Hey, you know what? There's a, a there's a, a you know a few thousand people that would love to have those outtakes in the live Milwaukee show on vinyl. Let's let's put that out. That's one more thing to you know give customers something that they might want. So you know it, it remains to be seen. And and you know I think that there's probably a a, 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 a comprehensive box set to be done around uh, you know the All Shook Down record, which I happen to find sure. to be an amazing record. Um, and one of my favorites, or even, you know, early stuff like Sorry Ma, it's coming up on the 40th anniversary of Sorry Ma. Maybe there's something to be done with that. Um, uh, you know, so, um, and Pleased to Meet Me is another one that's being talked about because that's the second bestseller. Um, but I don't think there's a lot of outtakes for that one. So we'd have to see what would work there. And, um, uh, but uh, anyway, yeah, I think that there's, um, you know, who knows what the future holds. I think at this point, uh, nobody's thinking about doing any more reunion shows. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, you know, again, you can't ever say never with those guys. They someday, you know, uh, Paul or Tommy might just go, Hey, I feel like doing some shows and Paul will call Tommy or Tommy will call Paul and they'll start cooking something up or it could never happen again. It's just you know hard to say. Yeah. I mean, I was uh, well, blown away by how good they were when they did the, 
you know, the first shows that they did at the Riot Fest, um, yeah. you know, shows. I went to the Denver show and was just knocked out. And then um, they came through L.A. when they actually did the full-on tour. And, and we saw them two nights here at the Palladium. And they were brilliant both nights. And, um, you know, and then they went to Europe. And, and, you know, Paul makes the announcement that the second Primavera show, that they're breaking up again. And, you know, the band didn't know anything about it. So that was kind of harsh. But um, to do without talking to certainly without talking to Tommy was kind of weird, but, uh, but, uh, you know, so, and, you know, from what I hear, Paul's not doing a lot of music right now. He's just, uh, kind of chilling at home and, and, um, you know, so hard to say, you know, maybe I see him this weekend. Maybe I don't. <laughs> well, it was, it was certainly, um, I mean, exciting for those of us that, uh, that weren't there at the time and certainly, um, the replacements never really, um, you know, did very much here in the UK. Yeah. Um, that I was following with close interest that they had, uh, you know, a reunion certainly with with Paul and Tommy in the US, um, with the very faint hope that they would ever make it over to Europe. Um, so with great excitement, uh, realised they were doing two nights in London and a night in Amsterdam, uh, and. You know, they were the shows, the only replacement shows I've seen that I can, you know, speak to. But they were unbelievably exciting um, just to see those guys on stage together yeah. playing those songs. Yeah. Um, and if that's the last of it, then so be it. But I would, you know, give my right arm to see another one of those shows. Oh, I'd like to see him again, too. You know, one of the great experiences for me was um, – you know, going to Denver with my wife and son and, um, and, uh, you know, my boy was, oh God, what year was that? That was 2013 or 14, 14 probably. Um, so he would have been 12 and, uh, they were really, you know, good to us, uh, getting us, uh, you know, backstage passes and, and they actually, um, put, uh, put us on the stage right uh, on Tommy's side, you know, like, so we were a couple of feet from Tommy and to watch my boy watch the replacements was one of the great moments of my life. He was so excited. And, um, and, uh, so yeah, that was really, uh, that was great for me too. Yeah. It was something that, you know, never thought would actually happen. Yeah. And the, the, the first show I saw was in Amsterdam and they came out to uh, a song we talked about earlier, um, surfing bird by the trash. <laughs> <laughs> and uh also um paul's sister was in the uh crowd that night and he dedicated waitress in the sky to her which was very touching. oh how funny i didn't ever hear that story in amsterdam yeah. in amsterdam at the paradiso huh. it was it's beautiful huh. um, and, uh, my one regret is i only saw the first they did two nights in london i saw the first night and uh, they called out for requests, and I shouted out 16 Blue, and he went, eh, maybe tomorrow night. Oh. And then I saw the set list for the second night, and, of course, he played 16 Blue. Oh. So you didn't want to go to both shows in London, or you couldn't? or uh, We couldn't. Logistically couldn't do it, but, you know, I, I saw two replacement shows. I'm happy with that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was spectacular. Yeah, um, when they played in Denver, there was one moment towards the end where they went into um, uh, uh, 
uh, impromptu, what was clearly an impromptu and very uh, messed up version of Hello, Goodbye um, <laughs> by the Beatles. And then Paul went up to the mic and he said, Pete, did you make it? Because he hadn't seen me uh, at that point. So I thought that was kind of sweet. Yeah. He's one, well, of the few people, one of the few people that uh, called me Pete. I've always been Peter, but he called me Pete. <clears throat> they had that um, ramshackle charm that is so famous yeah. in, in the replacements uh, myth. I remember in uh, London, they uh, went into talent show which uh, it seemed they hadn't rehearsed for 25 years, uh, and straight into a medley uh, with Portland, which is one of my favourite songs. Wow. Um, and it was um, one of the worst and best performances I've ever seen. So I think I saw a little glimpse of classic replacements there that night. So where are so the replacements reunion, Dead Man's Pop is out at the moment. Um Re, lots of people reevaluating uh, the replacements later years. Westerberg's solo work, which um, you spoke so highly of and, and kind of promoted in the early days, how do you feel about that? What um, kind of post replacements Paul's work since then? Well, I, you know, it's it's one of those things. I think um, you know a lot of people said. Uh, Paul was the replacements. And, you know, I think to some degree, Paul believed that himself. Um, but I think it's proven that, you know, his solo work, you know, for the most part, didn't really stand up to the replacement stuff. And so there was something missing that he needed to do the quality of work that he did you know, for those replacements years. Having said that, I do think that he, you know, I mean, first off, obviously All Shook Down, as many have said, is almost his first solo record. And I think that's brilliant. I think the song All Shook Down is one of the greatest songs he ever wrote and one of the greatest yes. band epitaphs of all time. Um, and Tommy, Tommy, I think, says that's his favorite replacements yeah, album Yeah, he does. Well. And, um, yeah. uh, and, you know, so for me, uh, some of the songs, like I mean, like 14 songs, I'm not... I like some of it, you know, um, eventually I like some of it. I really like the mono stereo stuff. Um, mm. I thought that was, uh, maybe his peak of the solo work. And in fact, you know, when I was at new West, uh, you know, Paul called me up one day, early days of new West and said something about, I mean, out of the blue after, you know, we hadn't talked about working together for years, uh, he said, uh, yeah, I've got so many songs, you're going to have to help me sort them. And I was like, I beg your pardon, what did you just say? <laughs> and um, so we started talking about maybe doing that record at New West. And in fact, uh, Cameron Strang and I jumped on a plane uh, with less than 24 hours notice and flew out to um, uh, Warwick, Rhode Island, where his manager lives. And uh, we talked about doing a deal and and I got all those tracks that uh, later were split between the mono and stereo records. I think I walked out of there with 35 or 38 songs or something. And I was just blown away. I thought there was so much good stuff there. And I was really excited about the idea of working with them. And of course, you know, to bring something like that to New West would have been a really fun, cool thing for me to do. But uh, they ended up changing their minds uh, in the 11th hour and going with Vagrant. And, you know, this is the way business works sometimes. I was disappointed, mm -hmm. but say la vie. Um, so anyway, I think that stuff is really good. And, um, 
that. And I, I, I really love those albums as well. Yeah. Um, Sue of King Gratification is, I, is possibly my favorite, um, Westberg solo album because it is diametrically opposed, I think, to a lot of the stuff he did with the replacements. I think it's just wonderful songwriting. Now, that's one that didn't speak to me, but, um, I was around for, you know, the, they were recording that in L.A. with Don Was, and I went to a couple of the sessions, so I was privy to it. Um, but I, I just never warmed to it over the years. But uh, I'm glad to hear that no. you feel so strongly about it. Thank you so much for joining me tonight on uh, Late Night Vinyl and uh, for being so warm and open and uh, willing to discuss your career with me. Well, I, it's a pleasure talking to you. It was a very interesting conversation for me as well, and I enjoyed every minute of it. God bless you. Um, and maybe we'll talk again once your book comes out. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Thank you so much to um, Peter Jasperson, and uh, we'll see you again on the next episode of Late Night Vinyl with your host, Dave Woodcock. Thank you. Should anyone be interested, the opening track is a song called 33 by myself and my band Dave Woodcock and the Dead Comedians that can be found on www.bandcamp.com exclusive artwork, prints, t-shirts, etc. of some of the coolest movies, music, TV and more drawn and painted by my own fair hand are available at www.terriblecult.com thank you so much for listening and we'll see you on the next one